Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, we will talk about the backlash President Trump is receiving from pro-life leaders concerning his comments he made on Meet the Press. We will also look at comments he made to Megyn Kelly about transgender surgeries. The United Auto Workers strike reveals both unity and division in the Democrat Party, and both Republican and Democrat women are behaving badly. All this and much more on today's jam-packed show. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Welcome in. Thanks for joining us on a Tuesday edition. If you're joining us live, it is Tuesday, September 19th. And uh, if you're joining us by podcast, thank you for downloading the podcast, for following the show, and um, just for leaving us a good review, hopefully, to help us continue to grow this program. A lot of people seem to like it. It is growing. So we're thankful for that. but uh, we're going to dive in today because we got so much to talk about. But I want to do a quick programming note first. Uh, Austin Barker is going to join us on Friday. We'll have uh, he and I together in, uh, in my studio dining room here, <laughs> the palatial um, studio that uh, always features my step, uh, listen to this, my step, my daughter-in-law and my two daughters in their wedding gowns behind me. So I think that makes, you know, I, I talked about putting up a big banner or something, you know, with my face on it or, but, but how can you beat this? I mean, I mean, really, you know, uh, for a backdrop, it's not too bad. Um, uh, actually it's really good. So, um, anyway, he's going to join me here in, um, what is my studio here in the house on Friday. And we're, we're going to get into probably some philosophical conversations if, if I know Austin well, and I do, um, about some of the deeper issues that are underneath the issues that are in the news. Uh, we always had a good time talking about those things when he was my co-host on um, uh, Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam for uh, the uh, 22 years. Now, he wasn't there that whole time. Hannah Miller was my co-host for a while um, for, gosh, I guess about four or five years. And then Austin came in for uh, about 18 months, a couple of years, and uh, before my producer, uh, Gary Miller, retired and uh, has, has taken up resident life at the beach, which he, he really deserves. He loves the beach, and I think he's enjoying being down there very much. So anyway, Austin's going to join me on Friday, and we'll talk about the news. We'll talk about some of the things behind the news So I hope you'll look forward to that and join me for that program. All right, President Trump has been getting some pretty stiff criticism from pro-life leaders, which is unusual, considering the fact that he has always been considered pro-life. He's always been considered a friend of the pro-life community. We know that what he did when it comes to the United States Supreme Court, he put on justices, three of them, who basically decided that Roe versus Wade was bad law and was willing to get rid of it. And that was a monumental shift in the pro-life movement. Now, it's led to a lot of challenges for the pro-life movement, simply because as the states have taken up this issue, uh, those who are radically pro-death and pro-choice 
I like to think of it as pro-death because that is the choice they're talking about. They're not really talking about a choice. They're talking about uh, women women should be able to get an abortion at any time during their pregnancy. And whereas Democrats are denying, some are denying, and at least the legacy media is denying for them that they say that, that that's what they believe, we still have states that are led by Democrats that have no limitation on gestational abortion. In other words, they don't have a, a date where you can't have an abortion, which technically means that you can have an abortion all the way up until the time, the point of delivery. And there are still Democrats who are saying that, even though Democrats don't want people to think that they're saying that because that's very unpopular. If you look at most polling data, people want some kind of limit. It is true that there are a lot of people in this country that want some kind of abortion um, law to be available for women to be able to get abortions, but they want that law to be very narrow. Six-week abortion bans are not incredibly unpopular. Now, the media will paint them that way. Democrats will say that they are. They'll run against them. But again, as we pointed out yesterday, they lose. Elected officials who run on a strong pro-life platform win elections. And so being intimidated, what the, what the Democrat Party is trying to do is to intimidate Republicans into abandoning, I believe, a position that is strength for them when it comes to the elections. And I hope Republicans won't do that. Now, President Trump seemed to be backing up some on his pro-life commitment. And in fact, you, you can't interpret this any other way when you hear these comments. I want to play them for you uh, again. And then I want to play the response for, from some pro-life leaders. But we're also going to look at a speech that President Trump gave on Friday to FRC Action where he talked about the things that he would do as president. Apparently, this speech was much more scripted than most of the president's speeches. You know, I've, I've said before on this, on this program that when President Trump has a scripted speech and he sticks to the script with maybe throwing in some of his comments along the way, it is, it is much better for him to do that rather than to ramble for sometimes an hour plus and just drop these bombs about his competitors or make sweeping statements about this or that. I mean, it, it seems to me that when the president stays focused on the issues that he wants to communicate to the people that he's going to be for and exactly what he's going to do, then he comes across much better. Now, that's just my opinion. I think a lot of people like it when he gets up and rambles. I just don't happen to be one of those people. All right, here is um, what the president said to Meet the Press on Sunday that's gotten him into a considerable amount of hot water with pro-life leaders. Mr. President, I want to give voters who are going to be weighing in on this election yeah. a very clear sense of where I think you stand I on I think they're all going to like me. I think both sides are going to like me. Let, let me but What's let Mr. going President, to have to Mr. happen President, is you're going to have to... Listen, you're asking me a question. What's going to happen is you're going to come up with a number of weeks or months. You're going to come up with a number that's going to make people happy because... 92% of the Democrats don't want to see abortion after a certain period of time. If a federal ban landed on your desk, if you were reelected, would you sign it at 15 Are you talking about a complete ban? A ban at 15 weeks. Well, people, people are starting to think of 15 weeks. That seems to be a number that people are talking about right now. Would you sign that? Uh, uh, I, would, I would sit down with both sides and I'd negotiate something and we'll end up with peace on that issue for the first time in 52 years. Uh, I'm not going to say I would or I wouldn't. 
I mean, DeSantis w is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think that I, I think what he far? did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. Okay, there's not there's not very many ways to couch that in something that's positive if you're pro-life. When a heartbeat is detected, we shouldn't be having abortions. We shouldn't be having abortions at any stage of a pregnancy. Once a pregnancy is detected, there shouldn't be an abortion. I mean, that's that's my stand. That's what I believe because I believe life is precious and it's that life is created in, in the image of God and we are image bearers of our creator. And life has intrinsic value, not just the value that we assign to it, extrinsic value. So the president here in saying this, as I said, has upset some pro-life leaders, and they've come. Some of them have have come out swinging against the president. Um, let me get back to the story here, because I want to just read some of the quotes for you. Um, Laws protecting the unborn are not a terrible mistake. That's what Alliance Defending Freedom CEO and President Kirsten Wagner, excuse me, Kristen Wagner, said on Sunday. They're the hallmark of a just and moral society. Governors who protect life should be applauded, not attacked. See, this is, I, I think Trump is making a big mistake by attacking DeSantis on the fact that he signed a six-week ban on abortion. He got elected by a, a landslide in Florida. He turned Florida from a waffling state to a deep red state. And so I, I, I don't understand why the president would think that that particular line of attack against DeSantis was going to be profitable unless he's thinking about Democrats, unless he's thinking about, well, if I, if I kind of fudge a little bit, if I, if I talk about this in a certain way, I might draw some Democrat voters. But it's just my opinion that if you're pro-life, this is not an issue that you mess around with. It's not an issue that you use for political gain or for your political detriment. It's an issue that you stand for based on principle. Now, that's something that I applaud Mike Pence for. I mean, Mike Pence in the debate was willing to, to take on the idea of a 15-week 15 15 ban, and he was willing to state unequivocally what his stand was when it comes to life and how he believes that life should be protected in the womb. And I appreciate Mike Pence as being willing to do that. Now, again, let, let me just restate here that President Trump has been called the most pro-life president ever in history. And of course, when you take into consideration his legacy of the United States Supreme Court and the fact that that is the court that overturned Roe v. Wade, that's always going to be a part of his legacy. And it's something that conservatives, um, something that Christians, something that certainly pro-life leaders should applaud him for forever. He's the only president to ever go to the National Right to Life March in person. And so there's a lot of firsts. There's a lot of things that President Trump did to solidify his support and to demonstrate his support for the unborn. And I think this is a, you know, this was kind of a journey for him, right? Because, I mean, he spent a, a good part of his time politically, at least as a Democrat. And so there's been a lot of changes in the way that he's looked at this. But this particular statement on, on Meet the Press, such a national forum and such a direct attack on a pro-life policy that most of the pro-life community, all of the pro-life people I know, would support and want to go even beyond. Um, here's another statement. Trump is actively attacking the very pro-life laws made possible by Rose overturning. Now, that's a great point. 
I mean, without the, over, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, all heartbeat bills would have been ruled unconstitutional at the federal level. And South Carolina had to fight, sorted, so did Georgia. Ohio's in the middle of a fight right now over whether or not a heartbeat bill is, meets constitutional muster in the states. Thankfully, South Carolina has landed at the point where the heartbeat bill it was upheld by our state Supreme Court. Same thing in Georgia, and we'll see what happens in Ohio and other places. But heartbeat laws have saved thousands of babies, but Trump wants to compromise on babies' lives so pro-abort Dems like him Trump should not be the GOP nominee. Now, I think that's too harsh, all right? I'm, I'm just going to say that it, that's Life Action's founder and president, Lila Rose. Now, this is Lila's lifeblood and passion, defending the unborn. I get that. I'm, I'm sure, it, just as I was appalled by hearing him say these things, Lila Rose would be as, as much and more appalled about it. So I get the visceral nature of her response, but, but it's too far to say, uh, when you look at President Trump's record, it's, it's not a fair criticism to say that he's not, he didn't govern as a pro-life president and that he's more like a, a pro-choice Democrat. That's, that's just not, not, that's not fair. That doesn't align with the facts. What facts we have is this. I believe President Trump thought this was an opportunity. I think he believes that abortion, because of what's happened after Roe versus Wade with the votes of people in Kansas, in Ohio, in Kentucky, and in other places, Michigan, where it, it would you would think that the pro-life argument would win the day, at least when it's gone directly to the voters, it's lost. Now, we've talked about on this show um, ad nauseum. I'm not going to get back into it. I wrote an article for the Baptist Courier that sort of analyzes why those losses took place. And if you want to go check that out, you can go to Baptist Courier. I think it's baptistcourier.com. And you can see, they. I think they archive the articles and you can read that. I'm, hopefully I'm going to get it up on my website. But anyway, um, I, I talked a lot about why these votes went the wrong way, or at least against pro-lifers in a lot of these states. So I don't think that that's an indication. I'm more impressed by the indication of pro-life politicians, pro-life leaders, pro-life elected officials getting reelected, pro-life leaders getting elected by substantial margins when voters actually vote on the person that's going to be making the decision about whether a state is going to be pro-life or not. Um, okay, the pro-life organization Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, call for every single candidate to be clear on how they plan to save the lives of children and serving mothers in need. It begins with focusing on the extremes on the other side and ambition and common sense on our own. That's what uh, SBA President Marjorie Dan, Dan, Dannenfelser, I apologize, that name's a little bit hard for me, Marjorie Dannenfelser said, Anything later than a 15-week protection for babies in the womb when science proves they can feel pain as a national minimum standard makes no sense. Catholic Vote President Brian Burt said the former president's remarks have sparked concerns among Catholics over where, whether he is committed to leading on this issue in the way he did during his first term. Now, I think that's the most fair statement that I've read of all of these statements that are expressing concern. I think that certainly pro-life leaders should be concerned when they hear President Trump talk the way that he did in that interview. But then this statement references back to his first term 
when he definitely governed as a pro-life president, and that needs to be taken into consideration as you think about what he said. Pro-life Catholic voters, um, this is Brian Birch going on, pro-life Catholic voters helped deliver him the White House in 2016 and a record number of votes in 2020. He cannot expect to win again without these same voters. Any Republican presidential hopeful must draw a clear contrast to the extreme taxpayer-funded unlimited abortion agenda of President Joe Biden. All right, just hold those comments in mind because I'm going to go to a speech here in just a minute that the president gave on Friday to uh, FRC Action, and it, it was a, a conference. He was kind of the, the closeout speech, and talk about some of the priorities that he mentioned in the speech. As I said earlier, it, it was obviously a scripted speech, and the president stuck pretty much to it uh, while throwing in some of his own comments, but the content of that speech was it, is. Just, I mean, I, I got to tell you, it was a good speech. I mean, it it focused on the things that I think a lot of Christians are concerned about, where the, where the government is concerned. Now, in in addition to being on Meet the Meet the Press, President Trump talked to Megyn Kelly, which I find interesting because we all remember the big dust up with Megyn Kelly um, <laughs> when you know they had in back in 2016 with the very first presidential. Um, debate and Megyn Kelly's star at Fox actually began to fade after the confrontation or the controversy with her and President Trump at the time, candidate Trump. So, but Megyn Kelly now is a uh, she has a podcast. It's hugely popular. Uh, she's got millions of followers, and she's you know on there every day. Um, and, and it's, it's a very popular program. And so President Trump agreed to sit down and talk to her. And he talked a little bit about transgender issues. Now I'm not going to play the whole thing because it's about eight or nine minutes and you, you, you don't, you wouldn't want to listen to that much, but I'm going to play the part toward the end where President Trump began to talk about the, about minors and surgery for minors, and where he would stand on that. And then Megan asked him straight up, you're going to hear the question here, uh, can a man become a woman? And the president's response wasn't satisfying to Megan, but I'm not so sure that she's not being a little bit overly critical about this. So here's, let's see if we can get this to play. In 2016, you said that Caitlin... All right, hang on. I heard like 62%. When they grow up, when they're older, they're saying, who did this to me? Why did you do this to me? Second of all, the parents have to make the decision. You know, they're trying to give it to school boards and schools and things to make a decision. It's unbelievable to think, you know, I talk about mutilation sometimes in my speeches. We will stop the mutilation of children. And then I'll stop and I'll say to the people in the audience, I'll say, can you imagine that I'm talking about we're going to stop mutilation of children? Yeah. But that's what it is. It's the mutilation of children. And we will stop the mutilation of children. Ten years ago, you wouldn't even, nobody would ever to think to, Think of it. I am telling people, because I guess I'm a politician, whether I like it or not, uh, as a politician, as somebody that represents a lot of people, I'm telling people that we're going to stop the mutilation of children. Who would have to say a thing like that? Yeah. You'd think it would be automatic. Would you, so would you be in favor of a ban, then, on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for minors? I, I think yes, yes, yes. Yep. I would. Can a man become a woman? Um, <laughs> in my opinion, you have a man, you have a woman. I, I, I think, I think part of it is birth. 
can the man give birth? No, no, although they'll come up with some answer to that also someday. <laughs> I heard just the other day, they have a way that now the man can give birth. No, I would say uh, uh, I'll continue my stance on that. Okay, to continue, to continue my stance on that, um, I, 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 you know, there are those who would say, and that was from the Megyn Kelly show, of course, there are those who would say that that that, that was a weak response, uh, that he should have just answered straight up that a man cannot become a woman for the sake of clarity. But I would argue that that's being overly critical of this particular interview. I think the president did say that. I think he said clearly that he would stop the mutilation of children, that he would certainly protect minors, and that, it, that you know, he was trying to find an example when Megyn Kelly asked him about this, about why a man could not become a woman. And that's when he talked about birth and he said, you know, a man can't give birth even though they're trying to come up with this. And then he said he would continue his stand. So, I, I, I look, would I have liked it if President Trump had just come out and just flatly said, look, no, a man, of course a man can't become a woman. I think most um, leaders, most Republicans in particular, are becoming very um, open about this and very clear about it. But I don't, I, the criticism that he's received over the first comment, I think is justified because I think it raises a question about is his pro life position beginning to shift a little bit, or is he just trying to find a way to continue to go after DeSantis, which would be politics. Now, again, I don't think that the question of, of, of life is, is something that's political, something that you use as a political tool. You answer it from a philosophical, convictional perspective, and then you stick to that. Uh, but the president did do uh, make this speech at... Um, at the FRC over the weekend on Friday, and I just want to read some of the things that he promised that he was going to that he's going to do, because it, it's uh, it, it's pretty amazing when he sticks to a script and talks about how he intends to govern. I think we begin to get a taste of why his appeal is so broad with so many people. Uh, this is coming from Daily Signal. Ben Johnson wrote the story. Former President Donald Trump has promised he will pardon or commute the sentences of sidewalk counselors, pro-life advocates, and every political prisoner who's been unjustly persecuted by the Biden administration on the first day he returns to office, he told the 2023 Pray, Vote, Stand Summit on Friday. Trump also vowed that he would prohibit transgender procedures for children and prosecute left-wing officials who enacted laws that facilitate children to run away from home and begin to receive transgender procedures gender procedures. The 45th president shared these and other specific policies during his speech, which closed Friday's proceedings at the conservative Christian summit hosted by FRC action. And he said, Americans of faith are the soul of the country. He said, the, Trump said he will overturn the Biden administration's attempt to criminalize its political opponents of faith. The president says conservatives have in common Marxists and Stalinists in the administration got a Washington, D.C. jury to convict five pro-life activists who are now facing up to 11 years in prison for simple acts of protest, said Trump, inside the Omni Shoreham Hotel. Five members of the progressive anti-abortion uprising, Lauren Handy, John Henshaw, Heather Adani, uh, William Goodman, and Herb Garrity were convicted in August of violating the freedom of access to clinic entrances or the FACE Act, over their protest at the Washington Surgery Clinic abortion 
facility. Now, on top of that, we've got three more people who have now been uh, convicted. That This trial just finished. A federal jury, according to the Daily Signal, convicted three pro-life activists on Friday for trying to stop abortions taking place at a Washington, D.C. abortion facility. A jury convicted Jonathan Darnell, 41, Jean Marshall, 73, and Joan Bell, 74, of a felony conspiracy against rights and a violation of the freedom of access to clinic entries. This is a FACE Act again. The Justice Department, which is prosecuting the case, said in a release that the defendants were involved in a conspiracy to blockade the abortion clinics. The defendants each face up to a maximum of 11 years in prison, three years of supervised release, and a fine of $350,000. And these convictions follow the late August convictions of the pro-life activists that we talked about earlier. And, and, and the thing about this that really upsets a lot of people these are peaceful pro-life protesters who are receiving or have the potential. Now, they haven't been sentenced yet, but the potential is there for them to spend more than a decade in prison. For these two elderly ladies, that, that are the, the older ladies that are, that are in this, 173, 174, I mean, that could be a life sentence. It, it very well could be that they would spend the rest of their life in, the prison, in prison if they were to get anything near the 11 years that the statute provides in this case. And we're talking, we, we've seen the Antifa protesters, we've seen the Black Lives Matter protesters, we've seen property destroyed, we've seen what news media outlets tried to call mostly peaceful protests as they were reporting in front of burning buildings. I mean, we've all seen those videos, and, and we've seen what happened to them when they go into court. I think one of the longest sentences that any of the protesters got was, when, and this was the one, I believe, who attempted to burn down a police uh, station in Portland. He got about three years in prison. Three or four years. I mean, these these ladies were simply peacefully protesting against abortion, something that they believe is the taking of a human life, and they could go to jail for 11 years. And so the point that I'm trying to make with this about President Trump is that this scripted speech that he gave at FR, this event sponsored by FRC Action or hosted by FRC Action is something that I think when we look at the the political landscape and we see all the indictments against President Trump, which those are actually helping him because the the vast majority of Republicans believe that they're all uh, that this is all representing a a persecution, not a prosecution of the president. and And for the record, I agree that the charges would not be brought against someone if it was a Democrat candidate, and, and we already see this. I mean, there's there's a lot of evidence that the Justice Department could look at concerning whether or not President Biden was involved in illegal foreign activities with his son, Hunter Biden. And CNN put out a, a quote, a fact check of the things that Kevin McCarthy said about President Biden and the facts that they've already uncovered. And what was so fascinating about that is that it went on and on and on, and it, it named about six or seven things that it called into question, but it could not fact check any of the things that, that McCarthy said. In other words, even though they don't like what he said, even though those things are inconvenient for the Democrat Party and particularly inconvenient for Hunter Biden and President Biden, 
It turns out that CNN even had to admit that a lot of these accusations had some foundation. So their criticism was just simply that they hadn't been proven in a court of law. But of course, that's not where we are at the moment. I mean, Hunter Biden is, is going to be in a court of law, but President Biden is in the court of public opinion. And impeachment investigations are political exercises. And CNN knows this. So we, we, in, in spite of all of this that's happening around President Trump, when you begin, when you start to ask the question, okay, what is the source of his popularity? And then he gives a speech like this that's very clear on a lot of the moral issues that matter to a lot of Americans because they see so much confusion and so much of, of these, so many of these issues being pressed onto them by progressives in the public in the public square. And then they hear President Trump come out and say, I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen. I'm going to protect children. We'll do it at the federal level. Um, I'm going to make sure that people that are going to jail for simply protesting uh, as a as a pro-life activist, I'm going to make sure they're pardoned. I'm going to make sure they get out of jail and that the Justice Department ceases its war against conservatives. I, I, does that resonate with the American people? I think it goes beyond the Republican base and resonates with a lot of Americans. So again, I just I wanted to be clear. My criticism of President Trump, and, and this is what I've tried to do since I've been doing radio, since I've been a public commentator um, of, of some degree, and since President Trump came on the scene, I've tried to look at his campaign and his governing objectively. There are a lot of things that the president has done that have been good. There are things that are bad, there, and I don't like, and I still don't like the coarsening of discourse in America because the, the example that President Trump sets for that filters down and it causes many of the rest of us to begin to speak to each other and to treat each other the same way President Trump speaks roughly in his, in his big rallies toward his political opponents and toward those that are in the Democrat Party and those he, that we would describe as progressives. When, when you have the leader who is up front making speeches using the kind of language that he uses often in these speeches and the way that he speaks dismissively, then that infects the rest of us. It coarsens the discourse, and it makes it, particularly for born-again believers, we're called to a different standard. I just wrote about that for the Baptist Courier. Um, that article will come out in October. And I talked about the fact that God has called us to be peacemakers. Are we willing to stand up and be peacemakers? Now, that doesn't mean we don't take a strong stand about the things we believe. Of course we do. That's, that's exactly what Paul was talking about when he said, once we've done everything in Ephesians, we stand. And that word actually means stand forth. So we need to stand firm. We need to be in the public arena making a, a strong case for the truth of the gospel. We need to be sharing the gospel with people, but at the same time, we need to be talking about the truth in the culture that will make our culture the best that it can be. And we need to do that without apology. But we don't need to do it in a way that alienates everybody that hears us because we speak to people in a way that's demeaning. You know, if you want to win somebody over to your side, if you walk up to them, slap them in the face, and tell them, pay attention, 
uh, you're probably not going to get very far with your argument. And verbally, we do that on social media. We, we, as people who are followers of Jesus Christ, begin to sound like everybody else. We're not supposed to sound like everybody else. We're supposed to sound like people who have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. I'm just calling for a strong Christian witness and for an honest assessment of what we hear from those who want to get elected to high office. We should be concerned that President Trump, as now candidate Trump, trying to get back to the White House, is criticizing another Republican who's running against him for signing a six-week abortion ban in Florida. When we have one in South Carolina, there's one in Georgia, and there are several other states that have done the same thing to protect the lives of the unborn. This is a subject that every one of us should get on the same page about. And so that's that's all I'm saying about that. All right, for now. Um, I want to move on. You know, I, I didn't get to the, the point uh, yesterday uh, Sunday was Constitution Day. It's the day that we're supposed to recognize and remember the uniqueness and just the incredible wisdom of our founders in setting up the Constitution of the United States. Without it, we would not have free speech rights. Free speech rights are being attacked uh, in our world today like I haven't seen. Um, now, I didn't live through the McCarthy uh, trials and all of this kind of back in the 50s, um, I don't know what was happening with free speech and what it was costing people at that point, but I can tell you this, in the culture that we dwell and live in today, free speech is under attack from every quarter. And social media, these big social media companies, are some of the worst offenders. Again, for those of you who don't know, I'm not on YouTube anymore, simply because I talked about the vaccines. And I talked about information about the vaccines that is readily available to anybody who wants to read it, and yet that that was a bridge too far for YouTube. And so this is the kind of censorship and the kind of shutting down of discourse, political or otherwise, that is incredibly bad for our country. And if it weren't for the First Amendment, if not for the First Amendment, I mean, these rights would have been taken away from us a long time ago. But they're enshrined in the Bill of Rights. They are part of American law, and the courts are moving more and more toward defending the Constitution because of its plain language. And that's where we owe our founders a big debt of thanks. Uh, this is by Jerry Newcomb. He's writing at Christian Post. September 17th each year, each year marks the historic moment in the year of our Lord, 1787, when the Constitution was signed in Philadelphia. This was a great milestone in world history. That is not an overstatement because the freedoms that were enshrined in the United States Constitution have spread around the world. People around the world have read this document. They've seen what it's done for the United States, how this country has become great because we've lived by a constitution that upholds and defends people's rights against the government. This is the first time that government has been limited by the people. Usually, government in world history is oppressive. It, it goes after the people. It keeps the people down. But we live in a we-the-people republic, a constitutional republic, where we are able to make changes and to hold our lawmakers accountable. And this is because of the wisdom of our founders. 
Uh, today, the Constitution seems to be not appreciated in, by many in our culture, including in academia, in the media, in entertainment, even in our government. A couple of months ago, on a bike ride in South Florida, I stopped to photograph something that seemed to me to be a metaphor about our current disrespect for the Constitution. Again, this is uh, Jerry Newcomb talking about this experience. Someone was throwing out in the trash, along with discarded foliage, a faded sun-bleached frame reprint of a classic painting of the Founding Fathers during the Constitutional Convention. He said, I stopped and I thought, how fit, uh, excuse me, how fitting these days, just throwing out the U.S. Constitution with the morning trash. Um, earlier this year, I did a radio segment with Dr. Daniel Dreisbach of the American University in which we discussed that painting and how the Bible impacted the writing of the Constitution. Dresbach has noted that the open uh, Bible, which can be seen in the bottom right-hand corner of the picture. I mean, if you look at the picture of the Constitutional Convention that's so popular, it's in, uh, it hangs in the United States Capitol, you can see the copy of the Bible. Meanwhile, polls show that many younger Americans don't appreciate what we have in this nation with our Constitution. Axios noted that patriotism is down, pride in national identity is lowest among 18 to 34-year-olds, and illustrates the fracture between young Americans and older generations at a time of deep partisanship in the United States. And the problem is not just among young people, added Axios. The percentage of U.S. adults of all ages polled who say they're extremely proud to be American remains near a record low. Now, look, I get that. I think a lot of people are saying they're not proud to be an American right now because of things that the government has done that's made it difficult for us to take pride in the way that we're being managed by the government. I mean, you look at Afghanistan, the disastrous withdrawal. Uh, you look at the number of times that President Biden has issued executive orders and he's been overturned by the United States Supreme Court. There, there are people that are concerned about the direction of our country, and a lot of times they connect the direction of the country with their feeling of patriotism. In other words, if they believe the country is going in the right direction, they feel very patriotic. If they think it's going in the wrong direction, then the direction of their patriotism tends to follow down on the traje trajectory where people are saying that they're very dissatisfied with the way the country is being run. So a key reason, and I think this is something we all need to remember, why the Constitution has been so successful is that it was based on a realistic assessment of human nature. You had the Enlightenment in France that was based on an atheistic or a naturalist view of human nature, and it ended up being a slaughterhouse. Because when human nature is allowed to take its natural course, it's always going to be down and away from the, moral the morality that God has revealed from heaven. So the founders found in the scriptures and affirmed by history that man is sinful, therefore power should be diffused among many. The separation of powers is necessary to keep some from oppressing others, as in our, it is in our nature to do. In fact, James Madison, who was a key architect of the Constitution, you know, Thomas Jefferson was in France when the Constitution was written. He was the architect of the Declaration of Independence, which was a brilliant document. But Madison said this. He said, all men having power ought to be distrusted. 
Alexander Hamilton, delegate, delegate from New York to the Constitutional Convention, once said, the triumphs of vice are no new things under the sun, and I fear till the millennium comes, in spite of all of our boasted light and purification, hypocrisy and treachery will continue to be, to be the most successful commodities in the political market. Wow. Was that insight? Was that, and, and was it because he had some kind of clairvoyant experience that he was able to see the future or that he had some sort of prophetic utterance here? No, not in this case. He was looking specifically at human nature. And he said, as long as people essentially are sinners, in, no matter how hard we try, hypocrisy and treachery are going to be successful in the political market. Therefore, where does the therefore come? Well, therefore, power has to be distributed among a lot of different people so that checks and balances can keep our sinful nature from destroying us. Whatever the reason someone was throwing out the picture of the Constitution, uh, the Constitution Convention of 1787, the fact is that the Constitution is worth keeping in high regard. It has brought liberty to millions, and it continues to do so. That's a great way to wrap up that piece. Again, that was uh, printed in, um, at the Christian Post by Jerry Newcomb, and it was on September 17th, in case you want to go take a look at it and see the whole thing for yourself. All right, um, I talked about in the intro to the show, I just kind of threw out this statement that both Democrat and Republican women are behaving badly. And there's a piece at National Review today that really puts a, a fine point on this, and it's by uh, Haley Strack. And I, I want to just, I'm going to read most of it to you because I, every now and then I'll come across somebody who has written something that I think is so well stated that it's hard for me to do any better. And the points that uh, Strack is making in this column, I mean, it calls both Republican and Democrat women into a standard of behavior, now particularly women. Now men could be in this too, but this the reason we're talking about women is because there have been at least three high-profile, actually four high-profile women, Democrat and Republican, in the news lately for their behavior, and it's been negative. Now we'll we'll go after the men another day, but since these stories are what's at the tip of the news right now, that's why I want to deal with it. Deal with it. Representative Lauren Boebert and her date groped each other in a packed theater in Denver last week while the congresswoman ripped a vape. I mean, this is the opening statement by Haley Strack, and that's exactly right. Look, this is on video. This is not a question of, gee, I wonder what happened. This happened in public. Uh, the past few days have been difficult and humbling, uh, Strack, uh uh, Bobert wrote, well, before we get to what she said, let me back up to this. Video footage shows Bobert at the musical Beetlejuice grabbing her date, and I'm going to clean this up a little bit, um, and as, as even as they were groping each other, her and her date. Let's just put it that way. They were surrounded by other audience members, including a pregnant woman who at one point during the show asked Bobert to stop vaping. Bobert refused and was kicked out of the theater. So she released a statement. She said, The past few days have been difficult and humbling. I'm truly sorry for the unwanted attention my Sunday evening in Denver has brought to the community. While none of my actions or words as a private citizen that night were intended to be malicious or meant to cause harm, the reality is they did, and I regret that. 
Now, yes, I, I want to focus on a little bit of her statement here. Yes, she was acting as a private citizen. But can I just say this? When you get elected to public office, you when you go out in public, you are not a private citizen. You are still a representative of the people. And the way that you behave in public is going to be reflected by or is going to be reflective on the fact that you were elected by the people to do a high responsibility job and their expectation of your behavior is going to reach a certain level. And besides that, Bobert has has extolled herself, uh, she has promoted herself as a Christian with pro-Christian family values as one of the reasons that people should vote for her. And she's also been very critical of drag queen shows where children in public are being exposed to sexual behavior, and yet she, in a date, goes into a public place, exhibits sexual behavior, and it turns out the date that she was with is somebody who owns a bar where these drag queen performances take place. Folks, that's, that, that's, that's hypocrisy on an incredible level. And no matter how you may feel about her as a legislator, her private life, the way that she behaves, the values that she demonstrates when she thinks she's in her private life rather than in the public eye is who she is. It's the old standard that who you are in private is who you are in public, whether the public knows it or not. And it's just every so often our public behavior opens the door or a window into our private life, and, and it reveals, it turns out, who we really are. Now, Bobert isn't the only female politician to raise eyebrows lately. An alleged affair, and this really breaks my heart. I, I think this is more, um, I mean, it's alleged, I suppose, at the moment, because you, you don't have direct proof, but there's enough evidence floating around out there that it's true that Christy Nome and former Trump advisor Corey Lewandowski uh, have been having an affair. They've been, and apparently this has been going on for several years. This is not something that's just recent or, uh, or, or, or casual. This is a relationship that they've been in, and both of them are married. It was revealed that Susanna Gibson, a can and then it was revealed that Susanna Gibson, a candidate for the Virginia House of Delegates, and her husband engaged in live stream sex for tips, behavior that she's defended. In fact, she had the chutzpah to come out and to sue Republicans. She wants to call Republicans onto the carpet for pointing out the fact that she and her husband have over a dozen videos at some kind of degenerate website where people pay quote, tips, and she said she was going to use the money for a good cause. Now, bear in mind, she's running for the Virginia, uh, for, um, the Virginia House of Delegates, and, and she's a candidate. But to raise money, she would ask people what sex act they wanted to see, and then if they paid, her and her husband would engage in that on this website, and they, they, they made money this way. And they're, they're blaming Republicans for telling people about it. They're trying to say that her privacy has been invaded. Ladies and gentlemen, let me just suggest that if you value your privacy, publishing yourself sex acts on a website and profiting from it is probably a detrimental thing to your privacy. It's probably going to tell the American people and everybody that knows about this that 
This, this is that privacy doesn't mean anything to you. Now, if somebody had filmed them in a clandestine way and published those videos, then yes, her privacy would have been violated. And, and this is her husband that we're talking about. But they agreed. They put this online and they charged for it. It's what's alleged here. And I mean, there's plenty of evidence to back that up. So here we've got these Democrat on one side here with Susanna Gibson, and we've got Christy Nome having this affair, even though she has run for governor and she has governed as somebody who is Christian and pro-family values, just like Lauren Boebert says that she is. And of course, I, I saw Christy Nome a few years ago when she was the guest speaker. I can't remember what year it was. It's either th probably three or four years ago now where she spoke at Jeff Duncan's Faith and Freedom Barbecue. Now, look, Je Jeff Duncan didn't know anything about this. This is not about Jeff Duncan or who he gets to speak. He doesn't have any responsibility for people that he doesn't know anything about that comes. But but I'm, I'm just saying that I was there for that event, and I heard her. And I remember coming home and telling my wife, you know, this woman is impressive. She's She told her story about how she rose uh, from uh, being a, a, a farm, basically being a, on the farm up to political power and what her family meant to her and how it was the basis of... And now she's out and there's apparently an abundance of evidence that she's been having an affair with Corey Lewandowski. She's married. So you, th this is what drives people crazy. If you... we don't Nobody approves of this kind of behavior... Uh, but one thing that they we really don't people really don't approve of is when you espouse values that you do not live out, and then that draws a contrast. I mean, it, it just points to the fact that this this part of your life is the political part that you're trying to paint a picture that you want people to buy into. But when we get on the other side over here, we find the other side of the picture is a totally different representation of who you actually are. And this seems to be true for Boebert. It seems to be true for Christy Nome. Now, Susanna Gibson, I mean, you got some Democrats that are lauding her. They think this was a great idea for raising money. I'm not surprised. I mean, progressives in the Democrat Party have embraced any form of sexuality. I mean, we could go back. We talked about Burning Man and that, and that whole debacle about how public sexuality has become the norm, and particularly that's true for progressives. So th this, is, this article goes on by Haley uh, Strack today and says, just a few years ago, Boebert's behavior would have prompted calls for her resignation and Gibson would have been expected to withdraw from her race. Granted, the bar for sexual morality in Washington has always been low, but it has plummeted further because of our culture envir cultural environment. Now, this is me inserting my commentary here. This is not what Strack says, Stra but but I believe it's the, the again the coarsening of the culture and the fact that all you have to do is watch. Well, actually, don't. But if you were to go watch an MTV Video Awards show, you would understand how public obscenity and lewd behavior, and in some cases, bizarre sexual behavior, is now paraded in public as if there's nothing to it. 
And when that becomes the norm, then we start to see these kind of actions filtering into the decisions that people make. They think that they've got the freedom to live any way that they want to. And this is this is where our values, who we are, come into play. We're either going to restrain ourselves because we believe that there's a standard that should be upheld, or we're going to embrace the culture and decide there's nothing wrong with wading into these waters and behaving the way that MTV videos depict and, and the popular music of today depicts that we should behave. There are no limits, no guardrails have been established in the culture. And this is the end result of all this. Although the Texas Youth Summit removed Boebert from the upcoming event, after first describing the representative as a devout Christian who seeks to honor God in all that she does, that was on the descriptive, the page that was introducing her that, where she was going to speak at this event. It did so quietly with no mention as to why. Some Republicans have made a joke out of Boebert's actions, and media outlets are focusing more on Boebert's vape habit than what they call her intimate public behavior. Now, the last two paragraphs that uh, Strack writes today are very important. So I want to, I want you to listen. This is this is the prob this is the real problem. These when when you see someone like Christy Nome, who's a very popular uh, governor and and leader in the Republican Party, and we find out that the values that she speaks in public are not the value that she's living out in private. And the same thing for Bobert. I mean, when 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 we see all this. We need to understand that this is a; these are simply the visible results and of what happens when the culture decides that human sexuality is something that is supposed to be designed for public consumption. This is what happens when the culture says there's no limits to what you can do or what you can engage in um, sexually, in public or otherwise. But here's the. Here's the final two paragraphs. Sexual immorality isn't news. More noteworthy is the frequency with which public officials display it and the fact that so many of their partisan supporters defend it. What does Boebert's behavior say about her stance on family values now? Boebert has blasted drag shows for sexualizing public spaces, yet kids as young as 10 could have been in the audience with her last week. Now, that's true, but we don't know that, and I think that that... I, I, I probably wouldn't have put that in myself simply because it's enough that she was in a public place with a date and they were behaving in an intimate way within eyesight of the people right around her. Um, Quinn Gallagher, her date, owns a bar that hosts drag performances. I made that clear at the beginning of this. So no matter whom she was, she was with, though, that a politician couldn't restrain herself in public is an embarrassment. It's more embarrassing that Republicans won't condemn such acts. And I, I'm going to put it this way. It's more embarrassing that human beings, that people who understand the difference between right and wrong, that even regardless of your political persuasion, we should all be able to agree that this, this kind of behavior is bad, that this is bad. It's bad for the culture. It's bad for the country. All right, let me talk for a minute about the UAW strike because I'm, I'm running out of time here again today. Um, it, National Review talks about this today, and when, the strike's been going on for about four or five days, and it's, it's actually 
going up. And I, I mean, this is sort of unprecedented and that all three of the big three car makers are being targeted in this strike at the same time. And this is big economic news. I mean, this is a headache for the Biden administration. President Biden, is, is, it's assumed that as a Democrat, he'll get the United Auto Workers endorsement for president, although they have not given that endorsement yet. But, but here's the thing to understand about this. Yes, UAW is asking, they started out, out, out asking for a 45% raise um, over three years. They've backed that down now, I think, to 36% over the next three years. But they're asking also for a, um, a 32-hour work week. So they want to work eight days a week, four days a week, instead of five days a week. And I, I think this is coming from the pandemic. I mean, people got accustomed to working from home. They got accustomed to shorter working hours. And now a lot of people feel like that that's a, that's a right, not, not something that was necessary during a time. And we can debate whether it was ever necessary, but at least it was assumed or considered to be necessary during a time of what was called a national emergency. But, I mean, how many people, I, I mean, they, they're going to work four days a week, they're, gonna, they're, they're only going to work 32 hours, and yet they're going to get this massive pay increase. I mean, most people are not going to get a 12% annual increase in their pay over the next three years. If the, and that's what's going to happen with the United Auto Workers if they get their way in this. But, but the big question here, that, or the, the big thing that people, you, you need to kind of look behind the curtain to see, is that this is, this is a situation in the Democrat Party which you've got the Greens versus the Blues. In other words, the Greens are the environmentalists against the Blues, blue-collar workers. And the reason that's happening is because of the electrification of the auto industry. I mean, the Biden administration has been pushing for electric cars. Here's just a simple fact. It takes less workers to make electric vehicles than it does to make gasoline cars. I mean, that's, that, it's something like over uh, a short period of time, the United Auto Workers are going to see about 200,000 jobs disappear. And in the long haul, that's going to be about 400,000 jobs because of it, an electric cars. Think about it. A, a, a gasoline-powered engine has a lot of moving parts. A lot of the engine itself is... Uh, intricate and has you, you've got to have all these hands on it to put it together and assemble it on an assembly line. But with an electric vehicle, it, we, you're, the parts are much much less sophisticated, much much smaller, and there are fewer of them. And so it takes fewer workers to actually put together an electric vehicle. Uh, Ford Motor Company President Bob Farley estimates that the industry will need 40% fewer workers to produce. E EVs rather than gas-powered cars and light trucks. That's 200,000, as he said, fewer jobs in 2030. That is just a few years down the road, less than seven years, and 400,000 fewer jobs in the long term. Dwindling jobs lead to dwindling income. And that's why all this pressure that the Biden administration is putting on the, uh, the car industry, the auto industry at, at large, to switch over to electric vehicles is leading to a lot of these problem, problems that are causing auto workers to get nervous. Now, what's ironic about this is 
Yes, on the surface, the Democrat Party has a problem between green and blues because the environmentalists are pushing their green agenda and blue-collar workers are pushing back because how it's affecting them at the bottom line, what it comes down to in their lifestyle, their ability to make a living. So it may seem like that there's daylight between the two, but here's what you need to remember. Progressives are all in for the Democrat Party. It's not like the environmentalists are going to stop supporting Democrats and support Republicans in 2024. It's not like that the United Auto Workers, although I think Trump is doing something politically that's a good thing, the next time the debate comes around, September 27th, he's already announced that he's not going to go to the next Republican debate, but he's going to go and speak to the UAW. He's going to speak to the United Auto Workers. Trump is trying to shift blue-collar workers because a lot of blue-collar workers that are not union workers have already shifted over to the Republican Party because they believe that the Democrat, the Democrat Party's policies are making it difficult for them to make a living. And so what used to be the Democrat Party being the, the party of blue-collar, Republicans are gaining some of that ground, and a lot of that can be laid at the feet of Donald Trump. So he's going to sp and, and do I think that that's a good idea? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know how successful he's going to be. I think I think the UAW and the Greenies and the Blueies both, and, and at least as union workers, are going to come back around to the Democrat Party. Um, and and of course, here's and, and by the way, here's here's the thing that we need to remember: um, the the UAW has actually released a statement. Um, I think it was back in August that says that they support the moving to, to green, more green cars and trucks. Uh, so they, they're trying to play both sides of the street. They're trying to protect their union workers, but at the same time, they're trying to signal to the Biden administration that they're not going to be against them. In fact, the UAW has spoken out, this is according to an, another article in National Review, has spoken out against a handful of specific actions by the Biden administration they spoke out against a green subsidy given to Ford for battery production, but it's because the loan that they got didn't specify wages to UAW's liking. In other words, they were upset about the wage amount, not about the green element. And so this is a union. Just keep this in mind as you think about the union. You've got the auto workers versus the environmentalists. The UAW gives 98%, has given 98% of its campaign contributions to Democrats in each and every election cycle since 1990. It's not a secret that Democrats support using government power to force energy transition on the American economy. It's not a secret that Biden in particular wanted that. He campaigned on it extensively. And it's not a secret that overhauling the car industry was a major part of that policy program with the push for EVs putting many UAW jobs at risk. And so the UAW is now trying to have it both ways. They're trying to be in good with the Biden administration, and they're trying to defend their workers who are going to lose jobs. Remember, 200,000 by 2030 and up to 400,000 ultimately if everything switches over to EV uh, electric vehicles. All right, just um, 
a little bit of a wrap-up about that. That's all the time we've got. We've actually a little bit over time today, but I hope you've enjoyed the program. Don't forget, you can join me every morning from 7.30 to 8.30 live on Facebook, and you can also join me by downloading the podcast. You can follow me, leave me a good review. All those things make life better. <laughs> they make life better for me, um, and I hope by more people listening to the program that they're going to be informed and there's going to be a philosophical, theological underpinning to the things that they believe about the news that they're hearing. That's my goal, and um, I I hope I'm going to reach that goal. So join me again in the morning, 730. Have a great day. God bless you.